Hello and welcome back to the Great British Common Sense Romaniacs. Remember, <laughs> you can listen to this podcast with your mum or dad, but only at a distance of more than two metres, unless they employ you as a household cleaner or builder, <laughs> in which case you can just all huddle together and listen in Porter Cabin. Or better still, get them to put their house in the market and you can go around for a, a viewing and a listen. Have you got that? Okay. Before we start, a big thank you to everyone who attended our Bunker versus Romaniacs live stream last Thursday. It was a big hit of positivity for us in these uncertain times. And you'll be happy to hear that as of Wednesday, all our hangovers have more or less cleared up. If you missed it, we'll tell you how you can watch a little later. I'm Naomi Smith and joining me this week are two members of the UK's extremely alert commentariat. Ros Taylor is the editor over at the LSE's Brexit blog. Ros, welcome. How are you doing? I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, I, I often sort of uh, get nervous asking you about the issue of schools. Um, <laughs> as schools were only mentioned once in Boris Johnson's speech on Sunday, he hopes schools can be phased open from the 1st of June. Um, but I think something that we don't always consider is whether the schools themselves can be ready for that. Yeah, it's a very difficult question. It's a good one as well, because and it's going to open up all kinds of very awkward questions, in particular about the difference between state schools and private schools, because private schools are going to have no problems, I think, with a 15 person per 15 kid class. State schools often very much smaller, uh, especially in cities, they, their premises are very small, and although they can make use now, it's summer, of course, of their outdoor space, which is an advantage, there are big logistical problems. That being said, um, I am really keen personally for schools to open selfishly, um, but also because I think it's really important because it's the way to get women back into work. Yeah. Um, if you don't have schools open, there are an awful lot of women who are either struggling to work uh, because they've got kids around the whole time or just simply can't work. And we don't want to get into a situation, which we've already got in a sense, because people have been t- told to go back to work yesterday. And presumably, you know, those people in manufacturing industry and factories are all men. So that's fine. Uh, uh, where, where we have a kind of two tier workforce. And it's kind of 1950s style, style uh, problems with, with women just not being able to work. Yeah, I saw um, uh, Camilla Tomney in The Telegraph savage Johnson over it this morning saying that this is quite clearly an easing of lockdown restrictions that was designed by men who assume that the main breadwinner in every household is a man and that they all have stay-at-home wives that can do the, the homeschooling and all the other bits. Um, so, yeah, he's being attacked from, from the right on it as well. Um, you, you also mentioned that Britain is reopening garden centres, but not, you know, things like opticians and dentists. Um, and so, you know, that effectively we're, we're a country run for the benefit of car owning pensioners who like, uh, you know, fumbling around in their garden planting things. Do you think that um, this new masked commute is going to work? Yeah, I got a terrible time for this on Twitter because people said, well, of course you can stay two metres apart in a garden centre and you can't stay two metres apart when you go to the dentist or the optician. And of course, that is absolutely right. But nonetheless, you are not a serious country when you say, oh, go back to the garden centres, but we're not even going to mention dentists or opticians. Uh, And it's just not serious. It's this kind of... You know, this, this British exceptions and this kind of jollification, oh, we'll all be fine, we can go fishing and play golf and all the rest of it now. But what about people who are in pain and need their teeth fixing? 
Uh, and that, that's why it frustrated me. Really. Yeah. And, and children, you know, and that aren't being educated and aren't at school are now sort of facing, you know, not having their, their braces or, or whatever else that they, they need as they're growing up. Um, with us as well this week, of course, is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk. How are you, Ian? Hello. Uh, shit. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, you know. It, well, it's been. Well, how, what is it? Two months now in the house. I mean, there's there are no moods anymore. Is there? There's just this sort of like permanent streamlined emotional state of uniformity. Yeah. Wow. But apart from that, fantastic. Um, according to the new guidelines, you can meet a friend or relative uh, in a public place if you observe social distancing, but not at home. Um, who's that one person going to be for you that you're going to? Oh, fuck no. Oh. Fuck knows. Um. I, I mean, look, I, I kind of have two stages of, um, of, of what I want. Uh, the first stage is just, can I have, like, uh, uh, other people around for dinner? Or can I go to other people's house for dinner? That's like the main, like right now, that, I think that would help quite a bit. And that would be quite nice. And I would understand that chances are they'd probably have to be from one other household and blah, blah, blah. But, but I just think that would make everything a lot easier and a lot nicer. Um, and then the stage after that is, I want to go to restaurants, I want to go to pubs. Uh, stuff like gigs and cinemas, I know that that's like a million fucking miles away, and, and I can't even think about when that will come back. But those two stages are kind of what I'm wanting. So uh, it's hard for me, like, it's just like, which friend are you going to go meet in the pub? What, like you're in a fucking spy movie? And just, I can't picture... <laughs> you're going to cut out little holes from the newspaper for eyes. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pop down my hat on like a black briefcase. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So, no. I, I mean, I, I am staggered that when I asked you which, which one person would you go and meet, you didn't say the guy that owns the comic shop. I'm sure, I'm sure you can think long and hard about that response. We can revisit it next week. Okay, so on this week's show, stay alert, control the virus, choose life, choose a job. Choose a job that the government is forcing you to go back to. We dissect the government's new guidelines for fighting coronavirus, and we'll be finding out about Spain's experience of COVID with our special guest, Fiona Govan, the editor of news website, The Locals Spanish Edition. She'll be joining us from Madrid, plus a roundup of our latest Brexit news. All that and more after a few reminders from Roz. As Naomi mentioned, we ran a Zoom live stream with the bunker for our Patreon people last week. It was tremendous fun. And if you'd like to see video of the event or join the next one, where you can find out what all of our back offices, aka laundry rooms or spaces under the stairs look like, then why not <laughs> sign up as a Patreon supporter? <laughs> laundry room. Anyway, we've had a surge of Patreon backers in recent weeks, which has been amazing and very encouraging, especially in times like these. Sign up as a Patreon backer and you'll get access to the next live stream, plus our splendid mugs and t-shirts, which are still being produced under scrupulous, socially distanced conditions. We're scheduling the next live stream now, so if you want to be the first to hear about it, search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. We'll let you know the next date, the minute it's scheduled. Thanks, Roz. First up this week, Boris Johnson has waited until we've been locked down for two months and halfway through our rewatch of Lost to dump yet more confusion on the nation. First up was the bold rebrand of the government's messaging from boring old stay home to modern, flexible and outdoors curious stay alert. A change so simple and easy to interpret that they had to release a new statement clarifying what it actually means. This was accompanied by a coronavirus alert level, which among many, many other things, was ridiculed for its similarity to the Nando's spice chart. 
Roz, <laughs> Boris Johnson's message on Sunday night encouraged all those who can't work remotely to go back to work somehow. Um, the guidelines actually came into force on Wednesday, but there was nothing to suggest that in his speech on Sunday. And so by the time it was clarified, it was all too late. Is this deliberate oversight or just more continued chaos well it was pretty much chaos wasn't it uh, from what i understand um from people who might know more than i do um johnson actually recorded the speech early on in the day without consulting the cabinet and put out the release basically so they felt not involved in the discussion and then of course you heard them going on to the today program on monday morning people like dominic rugg are making a complete hash of what the new rules were and what on earth it meant and whether when he said you know you could meet people two, uh, two metres apart outside, actually it turned out that outside only meant in a park and not in a garden. Why hadn't anybody even thought about this? <laughs> These obvious questions before, before putting out the statement. But in terms of stay alert, again, <laughs> from people who might know more than I do, I understand it was going to be an acronym, some sort of A-L-E-R-T, and each bit was going to stand for an instruction <laughs> right, okay. or a recommendation, who knows which, I don't know who cares yeah. at this point. But I, 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 I have no idea what the ALERT were going to, to stand for. I mean, you know, your guess is good mine. It's good. It could be anything. Stay alert by staying at home. Yeah. I mean, yeah, stay alert. I, I don't know. I think I've got brain rot from staying at home for so long. So the thought <laughs> that it makes me more alert to be stuck here any longer it's just such a nonsense um it, how much of it is just johnson passing the buck onto the public rather than taking responsibility it, 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 there's been quite a lot of uh, pushback on this that this is somehow or it's up to you and if you catch it it's your own fault because you've not exercised enough bloody common sense are they absolving responsibility it's entirely that. But you've got to remember that that is very much a part also of Johnson's modus operandi. So he is, you know, fundamentally pretty libertarian and he likes the idea of common sense. I mean, you know, I mean, a number of times I'm sure that he's banged on about it in Telegraph columns. Um, it is something that he, without knowing what, of course, what really it might mean, because no, as we discussed on Avaniacs before, no one really knows what common sense means. It just has a kind of dog whistle appeal to a certain kind of person. And I think the, the idea is it is basically a way of avoiding having to get into difficult questions like what is a park? Uh, <laughs> what, is, what is a garden? Uh, it, it avoids all that. It means you can just say, oh, whatever, waffle. And, and you, can, you can say, well, I'm just going to appeal to British public uh, common sense. And that's very difficult to do when you've just had weeks and weeks of people having a pretty clear instruction to stay at home and to go out for exercise once a day only. And then to suddenly be that to be thrown out and replaced by something very vague is difficult. And I think they should have anticipated that it would be difficult. Ian, what's your overriding impression of this sort of cluster? I mean, is, is the government in control and who is in control of the government? No, they're not in control. Um, it's been extremely, extremely chaotic on even the most elementary uh, parts of it. You know, for instance, the day in which it starts and the things you're allowed to do and who it applies to. Um, and then that's been followed by the PR campaign. The PR campaign is very, very clearly to do with that phrase, common sense, and to do with, as, as Roger alluded, uh, uh, weaponizing it. Like Damien Green on Newsnight 
as soon as the former chief scientific advisor to the government said this is not a safe time to be going out, his instant reaction was, I'm sorry he doesn't have more faith in the common sense of the British people. I mean, so anyone that's just spent three and a half years going through the Brexit debate was just like, yeah, I think I know where that kind of fucking rhetoric comes from. Thank you very much. I mean, just swap that for will of the people and you're basically hearing exactly the same shit. Um, there is another way in which it might have made more sense to be using that kind of rhetoric, right? Like if, if they'd if they'd come up with a proposal, which was something like, um, you shouldn't be seeing anyone inside and you should be two meters away from everyone. Um, but on that basis, th these are the kind of things that we're suggesting to you. And apart from that, then use your common sense. I mean, I might not like the phrase, but it would still make sense. But instead, that's not what they've done. They've come up with minutia, you know, like proper detailed rules, which the closer and closer you look at them, just look like they were written by a fucking clown. Yeah, they're completely balmy. And then they say common sense. You just think like, even on the basis of the logic of using that kind of rhetoric, it doesn't work given the kind of proposals that you yourself have put forward. One very interesting thing about this ongoing row within the, the Tory ranks between the Hawks and the Doves is that it, it really rips across the Brexit split. You've got hard Brexiters in both the keep lockdown and lift lockdown camps. How, how deep do you think this big state versus libertarianism, factionalism run in the Tory party now? I'm in danger of repeating myself from last week. Fuck knows which programme it was or whether it was a large or God knows what when it was that this was said. In fact, God knows what day it even is. <laughs> um, but nevertheless... I don't think the core part is really to do with big state and small state in order. I think it is people who want easy answers who suddenly go, well, well, let's just go out then, you know, and we'll power the economy. And to say to them that that simply will not work in the medium term, because as soon as people realize how dangerous the impact of that is, they will go home, regardless of how much you might choose to look at them like little economic units. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. And that helps explain why, I mean, you're exactly right to say that there's a split among the Brexiters. But actually, funnily enough, I don't see much of a split among Remainers. Mm. Most Remainers seem to be the quite careful, like, no, let's stay at home. You know, we should deal with this quite cautiously. Yeah. As things progress, we'll see the change. And so on that basis, I would suggest that I don't think this is liberal versus authoritarian. I don't think it's big state, small state. I don't think it's um, sort of shire Tories versus sort of, you know, global multinationalist sort of free, free market type. Mm. I think it is ultimately the, the capacity of the human brain to deal with even moderately complex thoughts. And, you know, if you do put yourself forward for a role in, in politics and governing the country, you'd hope that you may have thought about your own capacity to deal with complex issues uh, and that <laughs> having to deal with complex issues might be the definition of, of, of being in government. Um, After all these years of working with politicians, uh, Naomi, you haven't picked no, up much about their true, fundamental psychology. True, true. Um, Ros, these uh, people are supposed to be messaging geniuses after all. Um, and like the, you know, they brought back Isaac Levido to do a lot of it. Um, what sort of uh, thought process do you think went into Stay Alert and exercise common sense? Surely they didn't just sort of pull this out of out of a hat. No, I didn't. I mean, as I was saying earlier, I think it's uh, a question of appealing to a very it, it, it is it is all a piece with take back control. Really, it's fundamentally meaningless. Um, it's extremely hard to apply in any sense that people can understand, but it sounds it sounds good. Uh, that is the problem, really, that they are, they are struggling with. And I mean, the question I ask myself is, why did we need a flipping slogan anyway? 
does every country coming out of lockdown need a bloody slogan every time it um, it moves into a new mm. phase of lockdown? I don't think we do. I don't think we needed it. You know that ridiculous yellow and green thing. It, it it's just patronising to the electorate to suggest that. The, as Ian was saying, the complexity of the things they have to deal with can even be reduced to a slogan. And I think at this point they would have done well to avoid trying to get into all that and just to have issued some clear instructions instead. I do have a, I have a friend in Italy who tells me that one of the criteria, you're allowed to leave your house now, um, to see a lover, apparently this is the phrase, a lover, if it is a serious relationship. <laughs> okay. And I've spent quite a lot of the afternoon imagining what the police, mm. exactly what the line of police questioning is yeah. to establish the seriousness of that relationship. Especially amongst yeah. so, I mean, uh, who are known, exactly. known for and Liberalism no one is love. better suited. Yeah. Exactly. I just think they'll be very well suited to coming up with a legally viable definition yeah. of a serious romantic relationship. Do you know the French phrase, uh, sans cassette, which is mm. um, the hours from five till seven is when you see your lover in France because you're not expected to be at work, but yet, no, you're not quite expected to be home yet with the family. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the French have a very discreet window within which you can have a discreet little love affair, sans cassette. Oh, it's not even a lover. That's an affair. Basically, well, that's yeah. like mistress house. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, oh, Ian, is that's it, so, <laughs> so powerfully French. Yeah. And, and speaking of those opposed to uh, Johnson on this, um, Charles Moore has uh, accused Starmer of turning on the government. Hell, al- almost like it might be the leader of the opposition's <laughs> job to oppose. Um, how, how, what do you think of how Labour are responding to this? How, sh- how should they be responding to all of it? I mean, you, you'd be hard pushed to try and say anything too negative about Starmer at the moment, right? Like, um, look, I mean, I was looking at the YouGov polling. Recently, he's currently just a teeny, teeny bit above on the approval rating over Johnson. But that in itself is a significant change. I mean, you know, just one poll, et cetera, et cetera, lots can change. But, you know, taking the situation as he found it, party that has just been smashed to pieces, no chance to take advantage of becoming opposition leader to get that media time to try and get some awareness with the public. And in the middle of a national emergency where people instinctively go towards the prime minister, that seems an impressive result. We've just come out of PMQs and PMQs. I mean, that dynamic, you know, very specific questions, lots of detail, forensic, quite surgical against the sort of, you know, basically sort of overinflated balloon of, of Boris Johnson's ego was doing some quite significant damage. Johnson, either through his own inadequate grasp of the detail or through his inability to tell the truth, denied the fact that official government guidance about care homes was that there was no chance of infection up until March 13th. Um, it was false, like flatly false. And within min, I mean, I think it was like 12 minutes, yeah, okay. 18 minutes afterwards, Keir Starmer had a letter going off to Boris Johnson saying he needed to come back and correct himself. You look at it and you just think, that looks like pretty good opposition to me. As regular listeners know, we've been touring the countries of Europe to find out about their experience of the COVID crisis. And Spain has been hit especially hard. The Spanish endured a particularly tough lockdown, but it seems to have worked, and daily deaths and new active cases continue to fall. What has the experience done to Spain, and has it changed the country? Our guest this week is Fiona Govan, Spain editor of the English-language news site The Local, and a former writer for The Telegraph. Fiona, welcome. Hello, thank you. 
Um, last week, uh, some freedom was restored to the streets of Spain for the first time after a ban on exercise outdoors was lifted. It's lasted seven weeks and it's been the only country in Europe to go that far. Has it worked? It's extraordinarily strict. It's It's been so strict in Spain that um, I never would have thought it would have been possible to keep people confined inside. Um, and obviously, for the most part, the majority of people did stay inside. They flattened the curve. It's a term we haven't actually heard used for a few days, but they have they have done that now. Yeah, they're in the process now of opening things up very slowly and province by province. So in Madrid, for example, they still they're still in the preparatory stage of phase zero. Um, and what does what does phase zero mean? We it's not a phase. So phase so. So before phase zero, Spain was in total lockdown, which meant no daily exercise. The only time you were allowed to leave the house was to go and get supplies. And that was supposed to be kept to a minimum. So there weren't hard and fast rules about it. But the idea was that you didn't pop to the shops every time you needed a bottle of wine or uh, a loaf of bread, but that you were careful and you went out as little as possible. And then, and children were not allowed out at all for more than six weeks, which is really quite incredible if you consider how many people in Spain live in apartments mm. and mm-hmm. small apartments. And uh, phase one, which is the, the latest lifting of restrictions, which has happened in about 50% of the country, but not Madrid, not Barcelona, uh, some of the smaller cities and some of the less affected regions. And in these places, we've seen terraces, restaurants and bars open up their terraces to allow visitors uh, to sit. And from Monday, we've also uh, been allowed to visit other friends and family members, as long yeah. as groups are kept under 10 people. Well, we, we're certainly feeling pretty, pretty jealous of the sound of that. But tell us, how, how have people reacted to that? Have, have they sort of gone into that you know full gusto or has there been a kind of nervousness and a fear of of relaxing it so much after such a, an incredible strict lockdown yeah I mean it's there's a nervousness definitely but at the same time there's I mean the people I've spoken to they've, they've spoken about this huge excitement I mean how ridiculous to be so excited about doing something which was so basic it's yeah. going to sit on a square, on a terrace in the sun and have a cup of coffee with a friend. I mean, that is the bare minimum that one would expect to be able to do in Spain. Yeah. But suddenly those, those huge feelings of excitement about being able to do that. And then people said, people I've spoken to said that they were surprised at how nervous they were as they did that. I'm sure. Um, so this sort of anxiety about, um, you know, how do you really uh, keep safe? from something that mm. is not, invisible yeah it's invisible yeah. yeah and you know you trust that the cup that has been passed to you with a coffee in mm. is has not been contaminated at some point in the kitchen by the waiter to the table yeah but there's also i mean there's there's a huge worry about what's going to happen to Spain's economy obviously um, that people realise the need to kind of open up again and they want to support local businesses. They want to support the the restaurant that is opening 
the opening of Terrace because that restaurant is not going to be making money. It's still going to be running at a loss because it's having to run at 50% capability. Yeah. Yeah, so temper, tempering the the want to get out there and do things to support local business, but with that sort of underlying fear still. Yeah, and also very much watching the figures for are we going to see see this all rise sure. up again? Because obviously there's, uh, we're in exactly the same situation as we were last week. It's just that there have been less infections in the last week. So obviously people are very worried about what that means. Mm. Um, they're also a bit confused, you know, some of the rules are just seem so odd, you know, how you can just go around, to send people around to a friend's house, but um, you can't drive sort of, some some people who live on the edge of, of a town where the next town along is in another province and is in another phase and you're not allowed to cross provincial lines. As we understand it over here, um, opposition parties on the left and right in Spain um, are against extending the state of emergency, uh, given that lockdown rules have now been lifted. Um, to what extent are they representative of, sort of Spanish people at large and, and people living in Spain that aren't necessarily Spanish? Uh, it's very polarised. I mean, Spanish politics is hugely polarised. Um, as with everything in Spain, it becomes political very quickly. Plus, wrap, wrap into that the whole of the regional um, factions so you know Catalonia obviously everyone's heard a lot about the independence drive um, so suddenly they have very good reason to not want to be following the instructions set by Madrid mm. there's a huge amount of opposition to depending on where where you lie politically and, and which region you're in mm-hmm. right. I mean like just last night we saw people kind of gathering in the streets in Salamanca. It's an upmarket district in Madrid. It's it's very sort of conservative, um, leans much more to the right than other neighbourhoods in, in Madrid. People were on the streets demanding mm-hmm. that the socialist government had in in basically furious about how the how the handling of it has been. So it has become very politicized very quickly. And what is the public's verdict on uh, Prime Minister Sanchez's government and how they've handled it? I mean, we we sort of follow polling quite closely here in the UK on the Romaniacs podcast, but uh, confess I don't know too much about public opinion in Spain towards the government. Uh, there was a lot of criticism about how long it took to initiate the lockdown. I mean, just a few days before lockdown happened, there was a huge uh, Women's Day march, and obviously the a kind of public march for women's rights is very much seen as a sort of lefty movement. So it was a very easy drum to bang from the right, saying that it was hugely irresponsible to, to stage that. And obviously in hindsight, it was hugely irresponsible to stage that. That's the benefit of hindsight. So um, the socialists have been polling quite well, uh, but then as it goes on longer and as the economy gets hit, as the crisis deepens and it is going to be a very deep yeah. recession in Spain, um, I think that that is going to be, it's not going to play very well for them at all. Um, here, uh, despite our government repeatedly claiming that international comparisons aren't useful, uh, we've certainly on the podcast made lots of international comparisons and are pretty angry by the UK's uh, comparatively dreadful death statistics. Um, have Iberian comparisons been made uh, in Spain about why 
Spanish stats are so different from Portugal's. Yeah, hugely so. I mean, a lot there's been a lot of soul searching about why it is that Portugal has managed to um, to handle things so much better. Um, there's lots of reasons why Spain has um, been hit very badly, and a lot of that is to do with the sort of cross generational kind of living and um, the huge number of of elderly people that are part of part of society still um, and 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 just sort of talking about um being internationalist looking and you know making making comparisons and thinking about your your place in the world the dutch prime minister uh, mark ritter uh, caught flack by responding positively concerns from dutch taxpayers about money being used um from the eu to bail out countries like italy and spain how do the spanish feel they're being treated by the eu um, well, it's this constant kind of battle against the southern countries of Europe and the the northern. I mean, Spain is is going to be battling really hard for this fund, and you know, I think I think Spain pretty much always feels like it's overlooked, although there isn't really a very strong anti-Europe feel. In I mean, coming from Britain, obviously, I know what that feels like. It's not sure. feel like that in Spain. I mean, Spain very much understands it's placed in Europe and sees it as a mostly beneficial organization. Um, but it is going to be fighting very hard to get, to get help. I mean, there was, they were very upset about the Dutch, the prime minister's comments um, as a whole, I think. I'm, I'm not surprised at all. Well, I for one um, cannot wait to be able to get back to Spain once this is all over. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us, Fiona Govan. And for listeners who want to know more, you can read The Local's content at thelocal.es. Thank you. Thanks so much, Fiona. Now for our segment to the barricades. Every week we pick a new cause to alert our listeners to. This week, it's Ian's turn. Look, I mean, I bang on about this issue quite a bit. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to say Brexit. Um, <laughs> the, the immigration detention centres are continually um, a fucking stain in the way that we do things in this country. But in the middle of this pandemic, they, they have lost any kind of intellectual consistency as to their existence. Um, and they pose a threat both to the public at large and to the people inside them. So take the first part. Um, the purpose, people never believe this, but it is true, and it is true by law in this country. The purpose of an immigration detention centre is not to punish. The only reason it should be used is to facilitate deportations, removal from the country. That is the only reason anyone should be in one. Now, that has been kind of a myth for a long time, because for a very long time, around half the people that get put in them just get released back into the community, which shows you that, in fact, these are not being used for that. They're being used for a kind of social control. However, right now, no one can be removed from the country. There's nowhere to send them. It's impossible. And yet still, there are people in immigration detention centers. So the intellectual basis of them has been completely negated. And what you're presented with then is just a stubborn, fundamentally mean-spirited home office response, which doesn't know how to change the things that it does. So it continues to put people in. They were warned right at the start um, by immigration press groups to go, look, 
this is the exact opposite of what you want to be doing in a pandemic. It's not like the people are just trapped in there. You have staff that come and go, which means that these locations can be used for transference of this thing, and they just haven't given a shit. Now, you put that together with the other impacts on, on immigration. I mean, you look at people in the asylum system, still just given five pounds a day to live on. Of course, none of that's taking into account the kind of goods that they need to buy to be able to keep clean, to be able to keep away. They are put in houses with other families where it's almost impossible to maintain any kind of social distancing. Is this is a department that is simply unable to change what it is doing or to think more generously about the people it has respons uh, responsibilities for in the face of this pandemic? So look, if you want to be going to do something, you go join one of the organizations that's trying to do something about this because you know it would surprise no one to fucking learn that the Home Office absolutely has not used COVID to sort its shit out. And which of those organisations would you recommend? Um, yeah, I, I would give some money either to JCWI, that's the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, um, or to Detention Action, which is more specifically aims at what's going on in detention centres. Brilliant, and um, I'm sure we'll be tweeting links to those out so listeners can find them. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hier ist das Erste Deutsche Fernsehen mit der Tagesschau. Hello and welcome to the Brexit Bulletin. First up. Wow. I didn't know that we got this special voice for the Brexit Bulletin. Yeah, because it says cheesy 80s news bulletin music. So I felt that That's that great. was the, you know, got to slide in with the 80s <laughs> the DJ. Hello and welcome <laughs> to the Brexit Bulletin. Um, first up, trouble in Romania. After keeping open the option of a people's vote as a lowly shadow cabinet member, Keir Starmer as leader has stopped short, for now, of suggesting that the Brexit transition be extended. Ros, Starmer knows Johnson and his ability to save himself from the plank at the last minute every damn time. Is that what he's hoping for here, that the government will somehow secure a deal or an extension and, and judge them on how they handle it. I don't know. And I'm really frustrated by this because he's an intelligent man and he knows that there isn't time to do a deal in the time available still. And so intellectually, I'm having a great deal of a lot of problems with, with that stance. I can only assume that his thinking is that Johnson has reached the high watermark of his popularity that as lockdown ends very gradually, there is going to be no, um, shall we say, collective sigh of relief from people 
that might boost his popularity, partly because, largely because I think there will be a lot of unemployment and people will start looking for someone to blame and they will blame the person who didn't lock down fast enough. So I think his strategy is probably to hang, hang on in there and wait until by the time it's June, the extent of the damaged UK economy is starting to become clear and then use that to make the argument for an extension. And I suspect at the moment he would just rather not talk about Brexit. Um, it almost, I think in many people's minds, talking about anything but the COVID-19 pandemic smacks of, um, you know, being self-indulgent. Yeah, uh, and, and it is just not on people's minds. I mean, I'm amazed by how few people actually realise that the US-UK trade talks going on. It is incredible how little coverage those are getting, how little analysis when you consider how normally they would be poured over and we hear nothing about them and it's just occasionally a reference to chlorinated chicken. There, there is no appetite for this stuff and I suspect that's why he's avoiding it and he's biding his time. Sort of regardless of his own political strategy on it, from our perspective of, of uh, you know, the, the, the pro-internationalist community, could it actually be tactically more advantageous for us if Labour doesn't make extension a big flagship policy because it will make it more likely that the Tories will go for it if they feel that it's something that, that they've invented and it's coming from within them rather than some kind of concession to the opposition? Perhaps, but you could apply that kind of thinking to almost any aspect of policy. Um, yeah, it's possible. As I say, I suspect he just doesn't want to go near it because he's already having plenty of trouble getting much attention from media anyway. Um, I suspect there are a startlingly low percentage of people who actually know who the new leader of the Labour Party is. You're not seeing his him covered just because all the top stories are things of immediate concern to people about COVID-19. And that's not his fault. Um, it's just an inevitable result of the pandemic. Ian, um, to what extent is this... Um uh, Keir Starmer positioning himself for uh, prime ministerial office in a few years time um, you know this might upset Remainers in the short term but when the evidence we've seen so far isn't he perhaps more likely to try and strike a balance between the, the leave and remain camps within Labour support in the long run yeah but I also I mean I just think you know he, he just saw a the great big trap, you know, with flashing lights all over it in front of him and just thought, you know, I'm not going to fucking get in it. Like, it's as soon as he goes, as soon as he becomes a guy that's shouting for the extension, it authorises the Tories to go right back into their culture war attack. You know, you don't trust in the word of the people, blah, 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 blah. And it's, he probably just thought, I don't need to get in that and I can just let them sit with the problem that they've got. Now, that works right now. I think then there's the two deadlines and the first one in the summer and the second at the end of the year. Now there's some legal advice that suggests um, that really you can't get over the summer deadline and that actually ultimately if it's not fixed by then, then we really are fucked. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I've looked into this that deeply in the middle of COVID, but that my, my quite strong impression is that if, if, if both sides want to extend in December, they will find a legal mechanism that allows them to extend in, in December, I think. So, but whichever, whichever of those two deadlines we get to, um, I think that will be the point. If really the government, you know, had no deal and we're about to fall out on no deal, then I think he would say extend. 
because he would know, because by that point you can weaponize against Labour. The government would always be able to say whatever happened. Well, Labour supported us in that. But for the time being, Mahanjusi just thinks that we'll just let them fucking swim in it for now and make sure I mean, the spotlight doesn't come it, on me it, on this issue. Surely the, the Tories would love nothing more than to be able to get away from talking about COVID and back to talking about Brexit and getting Brexit done. And so by beginning to talk about extension, he gives them that gift. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly what I feel. I mean, I, look, I know it's it's hard, and I, I don't like the sound of it either. Um, I, I I sort of think, you know, for, and I'm not suggesting Remainers aren't doing this anyway, because Remainers are just as distracted as everyone else by what's going on. But it's you know, now is not the time to put pressure on him to be proving himself to us on on his. We know he's on the level. We know he's trying not to get painted as you know the, the remain guy who's just not going to be able to get anywhere. He's trying to not give the Tories what that they what they want, and that to me at the moment, regrettably, does seem like a sensible course of action. And finally, in a segment sponsored by the Romaniacs Chambers Legal Office. The Met Police have ended their investigation into the upstanding British citizen, Darren Grimes, after the Electoral Commission accused him of breaking the law on campaign spending. Ian, this has led to fresh allegations of bias against the Commission. Is there really any limit at all to the Brexiteer victim complex, despite the government <laughs> literally, literally being run I vote leave right now. <laughs> no, no, they'll never, they'll never stop feeling sorry for themselves. In the same way that they'll never stop complaining about the establishment, you know, as a cabinet secretary sat on a mainstream news program. So, <laughs> it, you know, you, they're never going to get to that point of self-awareness where, where they stop doing it. The Electoral Commission, you, you're getting to the point now, I have to say, where it's quite hard to find anyone who's got much faith in them. I mean, obviously all the leave guys, you know, have been trying to slice them up in the, in the back alley for a long time, but most of the remain sort of guys, especially the lawyers around remain, especially those who've looked into this have been deeply unimpressed with, with how they've proceeded. So just in terms of, you know, in all political situations, you want to think, well, just exactly how many allies do I have right now? And actually for that organization, they're, they're, they're getting it pretty much universally. Rose, um, we used to talk about, leave campaign spending and overspending and all the rest of it all the time um, and of course other priorities have very much taken over since then but but will campaign spending still matter once we're rid of coronavirus and back into politics as normal there needs to be a massive rethink of the way we run elections and the way political parties buy advertising and a lot of that work is still going on and will resume once this episode is over there they, it will next in the next six months to a year or so i expect there to be some legislation coming through on this and that will be an opportunity to try and pin down and and establish you know free, basically the free-for-all that internet advertising has created to try and establish new rules so no it won't immediately matter but i think it's uh you know a third fourth degree issue that's going to come up towards the end of the year We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge, where we've replaced all of our safety guidelines with a simple three-word phrase for our construction workers. You can probably guess what they are. Ros, would you like to add another brick to our bridge? Yeah, it was it was a tough one this week because um, I was thinking about Matt Hancock's warning yesterday that we wouldn't be taking foreign holidays this year and what a miserable prospect that was. 
uh, particularly as I kind of, part of me suspects that now we've had all this wonderful weather, that, that was just lockdown weather. But that was a, a, something we had during lockdown when we couldn't go out to exercise much. And now that is over and it is going to be a totally shit summer. But I digress. That is just my question. I digress. So, so I was uh, thinking about, you know, how you can kind of just stay in touch with Europe in a way that, you know, normally you'd, 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 you'd maybe visit for a summer holiday and now you can't anymore. And then I came across news for a campaign by the French government today called, which you're not going to like, Naomi, um, Fromagissant. <laughs> Fromagissant is a blend of fromage and agissant, which basically means act for our cheese, loosely translated. And it's, the problem is that French people have been buying less proper cheese they've been buying you know the kind of bog standard um uh, vashkiri stuff kind of the 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 lowest common denominator of french cheese and they have not been buying brie de Meaux and monster and all their lovely old cheeses and therefore they are launching a campaign to get people to eat more of them and it seems to me that that is something we can do eating french cheese if we are not vegan <laughs> Ian can definitely polish off my shirt. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Roz, Ian, and our guest, Fiona Govan. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. Anna, thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Many thanks to Chris Jobling, Owen, Dominic Ward, Teresa Nicholson, Louis Clefsior, Barbara Gelder and Carol Langham. Hello and stay alert from me to Tim Britton, Leia Jewett, Stuart Ward, Emily Lonsdale, Paul Harrop, Richard Bautel and Simon Bone. And finally, hello from me and many thanks to Jeanette Young, Phil Mills, Laura Watts, Gareth Williams, Judy Cunahan, Shonos and Ross Mackey. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Ian Dunt and Ross Taylor. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 